0: And just before we get into the podcast, I think it's important to remind everyone that the issues that we are talking about are very difficult. They involve issues of violence, sexualized violence, uh, deaths in family members, systemic racism, both historic and current. And for anyone who needs support, there is the Indian Residential School Survivors and Family 24-Hour Crisis Line. 1 800 721 0066. Welcome back, Warriors. Kwe Tensei Sego Ani buju. Kwe Nin DeLouise Pam palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. It's also about asserting, living and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And an important part of this work that is integral to what we do as nation building is to make sure that we are taking all the steps we need to to keep our people safe, including Indigenous women and girls. The human rights crisis that is the abused, exploited, neglected, disappeared, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is one of the most urgent safety issues that Canada has ever faced, and it is not getting enough concrete action. This is despite the fact that Indigenous families, survivors, advocates and experts have been for many, many years, decades in some cases, trying to educate the public and put pressure on all levels of government, industry, businesses, and many segments of society to help take concrete action to end the violence. In fact, it is only because of their sustained and determined advocacy, their refusal to give up, that we even had a national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The National Inquiry considered oral and written testimony and evidence, reviewed tons of research and submissions before concluding that these grave human rights violations against Indigenous women and girls amounted to genocide, not just historic genocide, but ongoing genocide. And today's guest knows all of this issue all too well. Marion Buller, the Honourable Marion Buller, was the Chief Commissioner for the National Inquiry. A lawyer by profession, she has practiced in Indigenous law, women's rights, human rights for years before becoming the first First Nations woman judge in a provincial court in BC, which is awesome in and of itself. And she even helped to establish a First Nations court. And we're going to talk to her all about that in a few minutes. But it's important to know that she has won numerous awards, more than I can list here, but awards that include the Queen's Jubilee Award, the Diamond Jubilee, among many others. And I am so honoured to have you on the Warrior Life podcast. Welcome to the show, Marion. Well, thank you
1: so much, Pam, and hello everyone from the unceded traditional and ancestral territory of the Musqueam, Sechelt, and Squamish people. I'm just outside of what's commonly called Vancouver, British Columbia. So, hi, hello.
0: <laughs> and our listeners and viewers are from all over the place today. I'm coming to you from the sovereign territory of the Mississaugas of Scugog, and there's lots going on here. But they have definitely been following this issue. Now, I am totally anxious to get into all the issues. But before I do, I want to make sure that I give you an opportunity to introduce yourself according to your protocols and and maybe tell us a little bit about where you're from.
1: Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm Marianne Buller. Uh, In addition to what you've already said, Pam, I'm a a grandma. I'm a stepmom. I'm a sister. I'm a sister-in-law. I'm a cousin. I'm an auntie. I'm a great auntie. niece. (laughs) I hope I got them all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have uh, a wonderful family life.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And where are you from? Well, uh,
1: I'm a member of uh, Mr. Wasis Nehawak, which is a First Nation in Saskatchewan, sort of between uh, Saskatoon and Prince Albert, kind of. Uh, But for a variety of twists and turns in my uh, family history uh, I grew up in Toronto but we spent we my family and I spent the summers in Saskatchewan
0: the number one question I get asked all the time whenever I have guests on this show is what is the backstory how did you get to be to where you are today like from the time you were six years old were you saying I want to be a lawyer and I want to be a judge and here's my path how did you Get on this path?
1: I fell into it. <laughs> um, I did not grow up uh, wanting to be a lawyer or a judge. Those options were not on my radar. Uh, I had one family member by marriage who was a lawyer, uh, but we really didn't know him all that much. Uh, I got into law really uh, by combination of luck, accident. Uh, I knew I had I was working for a large corporation and I knew I had to have a postgraduate degree in order to get further within the corporation. And uh, I looked at uh, MBA, chartered accountant, law as all the options. And I knew I could get into the law school at the University of Victoria. Uh, And I was living in Victoria at the time, so it didn't require me moving to Vancouver. So I applied and got in thinking that I would finish my law degree, and go back to the corporation as in-house counsel. In first-year law, like everyone, I took criminal law. It's a required course. And the professor, Dr. Keith Jobson, just lit a fire in me. Uh, I knew I had to be in a courtroom. And so uh, I said to the corporation, uh, I'm actually leaving. I took a leave of absence. Uh, I won't be coming back. Uh, i I know where I have to be, and I have to be in a courtroom. So uh, I kind of fell into it. And really, uh, Dr. Keith Jobson is the one who, I don't know whether I should think or not, sometimes. And then uh, after I started practicing as a lawyer, I was the commission counsel for the Caribou-Chilcotin Justice Inquiry Uh, The now late uh, Tony Sarich, who was a provincial court judge, was the commissioner for that inquiry. And he really got on me about applying to be a judge and uh, nagged me, actually. (laughs) I applied and I was appointed. And actually, I was the first First Nations woman uh, to be appointed in any court in British Columbia. And so it was really quite an honour for me to do that. And again, uh, not anything that I had planned, not a vision I had when I was uh, a a young woman. It just happened.
0: I love it when our listeners get to hear that because sometimes we think if we don't have our life planned out by the time we're in grade 10 so that we know everything that there's just no way we're going to do important and effective and meaningful things when in fact some people's paths just kind of go the way they go and you end up where you're supposed to be and so I mean law school and then a judge, which is pretty amazing. And then obviously you went on to become the chief commissioner of the national inquiry, but that's pretty inspiring. The fact that you were a judge, um, like, what was that like? Did you get to work with any other first nations judges in BC?
1: Uh, well, it was fabulous, Pam, <laughs>
0: For 22
1: years, other than maybe four or five days, I got up every morning looking forward to going to work uh, I worked uh, indirectly with four or so other indigenous judges. We weren't in the same courthouses uh, up until about the time that I retired. When there there were two of us in the same courthouse, uh, but uh, no, uh, I was pretty much on my own the whole time uh, up until. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact date. For most of my career as a judge, I was the only. Indigenous woman uh, on the bench. And up until about the last four years or so uh, that I was on the bench, um, uh, I had company, uh, Judge Karen Wanick, who's First Nations as well. So, uh, you know, the numbers are growing slowly. uh, But uh, wonderful colleagues, absolutely fabulous judges.
0: And how many people get to say, I loved every minute of going to work? Not not many.
1: No, no. And so it w- was a real gift to be able to uh, help people solve problems, hopefully in a good way, mm-hmm. make some social change as well as you go along. And uh, I always say, at least when you're a judge, you know what you're going to be wearing at work. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> always. Have that same gear on. So, it's, what color black socks will I wear? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: well, it saves on the wardrobe bill, I guess. Yeah. Not only representing and blazing trails on that front, because that's pretty significant. We're still grossly underrepresented. Uh, The, the whole justice see, whether it's provincial or federal or supreme court but you also helped create the First Nations court. Like for people who don't know about that, can you just give a little background about that? Cause that's also pretty significant. Oh yes. Um,
1: boy, it's like talking about your child, you know, <laughs> uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to take a, a criminal court. It's a criminal sentencing court really. And uh, turn it into um, an indigenous, more of an indigenous court. Now, It's a colonial structure, enforcing colonial laws, and there's only so much you can do. Uh, But there's also a lot that you can do to make it a better place for Indigenous people and better in the sense of the focus on healing. Uh, I learned after doing circuit courts all through British Columbia, especially Northern British Columbia, the impact of trauma and intergenerational trauma on our people. And so one of my goals with First Nations court was to to go into sentencing with the help of elders, with the help of Gladue reports, with a lot of input from the community as well, and say, okay, the starting point is we know you have trauma. How are we going to best address it so that you're not reoffending or that trauma is not causing you to reoffend? And so that was the, the focus is healing, dealing with the underlying issues that are causing the offending behavior, rather than just putting band-aids on mm-hmm. the offending behavior. And uh, it requires a lot of healing, a lot of work. Uh, As I said, I worked with elders, I worked with uh, service providers, some fabulous lawyers and crown counsel who really were committed to changing how the system did business with Indigenous people and some absolutely amazing stories of of people who... um, healed. I guess it's the best yeah. way of describing it. And I used to say, and I still say, I wish I could take pictures of people on their first day in First Nations mm. court. And then a picture of them on their last day of First Nations court. And they're different looking, Pam. It, you can just, they just
0: glow. That, yeah. well, that's amazing to do things differently. You know, just that opportunity to do things differently. And I can only imagine in that scenario or as a judge or even as a lawyer, you've seen the full gamut of how trauma is inflicted on people, but also then how experienced trauma manifests in people. And I just want to say, you know, to all the listeners and viewers, because we are talking about different, you know, difficult issues that there is a 24-hour crisis line it says for residential school survivors and families but you know that that includes you know the survivors and families of murdered and missing indigenous women and girls of foster care system people in incarceration like everybody who's experiencing this kind of trauma um th- th- there there are supports there, and I think it's important. And you know, thank you to Marion for reminding me to post these kinds of resources when we have these discussions, um, because trauma is a real thing, and you can be triggered just talking about these issues. So it's it's important. And we'll keep showing this number throughout this podcast as well. Where, where is the First Nation court now? Is it still operating? Is it still um, doing its good work? Oh, yes.
1: Uh, Under the guidance of Judge Garth Smith, who's Métis, um, the court is still running. Uh, It's in New Westminster. And now I believe there are a total of seven First Nations courts in British Columbia following similar models uh, all across the province. And we've also started a, a family court for kids in care. Now, I never presided in that court. I left the court. To go mm-hmm. to the national inquiry. But we certainly were able to build the foundation for the family court before I left. And the elders from the First Nations court took this on and said, We're not letting this fall by the wayside. Bless them. And so they uh, took it upon themselves to get this court up and running. And mm-hmm. it, the goal is to get the kids out of care and to level the playing field, Pam, so the kids can get out of care.
0: Oh, my goodness. Just imagine if we had that everywhere in Canada. It is such a battle. I work with First Nations and other provinces who you you can't even get your day in court. You know, so you're without your, cha- your brand new baby for a year before you even get a court date. And then it can be extended or delayed. And it's just you don't even have access to justice.
1: No. And I, I agree. And it's um, we're all going to all of us. All Canadians are going to pay a price for that, and we are now, actually, with incarcerated uh, people, with poverty, with marginalization, uh, you name it. So, you know, we're, we're all paying for it one way or the other.
0: So it seems to me that your background, not just as a lawyer or a former judge and, you know, but dealing with trauma and focusing on healing and alternatives to the current really harsh colonial system, which is often racist and discriminatory against Indigenous peoples. seems like you had a good background for what was to come in terms of being appointed the chief commissioner of the National Inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. How did that come about? I know some of that stuff is confidential, but did you ever expect that you would be that, doing that someday?
1: <laughs> no, again, it was another thing I fell into, Pam. Uh, I, uh, to make a very long story short, I was having lunch one day with some of my colleagues, other judges. And it was during the stages of the pre-inquiry process, and one of the judges raised the pre-inquiry and I said, oh, no, oh, they're doing it all wrong. <laughs> they really need to be doing X, Y, and Z. And so one of the judges at the table had a friend in Ottawa and passed this message along to the friend in Ottawa. Uh, the judge that I work with says they're doing it all wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Out of the blue, about a month later, I got a phone call from one of the, I think it was the chief of staff for Minister Bennett at the time saying, we understand you have some ideas. (laughs) Would you be willing to have dinner with the minister when she's in in Vancouver? And I said, oh, sure, why not? And so uh, I had then started watching what was happening with the pre-inquiry a lot closer and sort of sketched out, quite literally sketched out what I thought a national inquiry should look like. Uh, On the day that uh, I was to meet the minister for dinner, uh, I was late leaving court and then coming home and changing and then having to drive downtown. And I, inadvertently left my notebook with all my notes on my counter. But I remembered them because it was all pretty simple. So we were having dinner. I took a napkin and a pen and just sketched out on the napkin for Minister Bennett what the national inquiry should look like. <laughs> I mean, sure. I had no desire to um, to be a chief commissioner or a commissioner or anything else at that point. Uh, I was just helping. I thought. You know, I'm doing my my job as a, a an informed citizen. Uh, hopefully, they'll avoid making some mistakes. And then the phone calls and the text messages from staff kept coming about, well, would you take a look at the terms of reference? Would you do this? Would you do that? Wow. I thought, sure, fine. You know, what am I going to do? Why not? Mm-hmm. And so uh, because they were headed down some rabbit holes that they shouldn't that they avoided. And then one day I got a call uh, from a staff member saying, would you be available uh, for a telephone conversation with Minister Bennett, uh, Monsef, and the Attorney General, uh, Raybold?" And I said, oh, yeah, fine, why not? I'm <laughs> glad to share my opinion with them. And so uh, we had this conversation. and uh, It was right before I was to go into the busiest remand court in Canada. Uh, And so they're talking, what's your vision for the court? And what do you see? And how do you see this going? And so I was more than willing to share my opinion. And uh, I didn't realize until afterwards, uh, I was sitting in this very busy courtroom uh, late because I was on the phone with the three ministers and thinking, I think that was just a job interview, (laughs) but I'm not sure. And so we proceeded with this very busy day in Remand Court, and uh, we took a break. And I stood in the hallway afterwards. That was a job interview, and I thought, "Oh well, who knows?" And then uh, I forget how I got the actual offer. I think it came through Privy Council, and mm-hmm. I had a long, hard think about taking the appointment because, first of all, I'd have to retire as a judge. They couldn't, succumb, I won't get into. it, They couldn't succumb. That's the whole other issue. So I had to retire as a judge. Uh, I didn't know if I'd have to move to Ottawa or not. I didn't know if I wanted the public profile. I didn't know if I I wanted the grief that would be involved with it. Um, So I I talked to elders and family members and ultimately said yes to Privy. I'm pretty sure it was Privy Council. And yeah, that's how it all happened. But I wasn't lobbying Nobody was nominating. Their, uh, no political party or Indigenous organization wow. was advancing me as a candidate that I know of anyway. Uh, I just thought I was helping out and giving some of the advice.
0: Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know... I'm always amazed when I hear different people's backstories, you know, like how they came to do X or Y or Z. Sometimes you think, oh, it's an application process or it's this or it's that. But sometimes things just happen in very organic, unintentional ways.
1: Right. Yeah. Wow. And that's sort of what happened here. And uh, it was probably the hardest work I've ever done, but I would do it again in a heartbeat.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, that says something because it was a long, difficult, tumultuous process with all the trauma you could possibly imagine um, added to that. Uh, So let's get into the work of the National Inquiry because, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen from the pre-inquiry process to the terms of reference process Mm to the you know, midway report and to the final inquiry. It wasn't something that you could accurately predict. We were all trying to gauge what was going to happen and and what kind of impact it would have. What kind, There was just no way to know. And, of course, you know, everybody in the Indigenous world, we were all involved in it in some way. Um, full disclosure, I was one of the people that made an oral presentation and a written presentation like so, so many other people such an important process. So I, I'm wondering for for anyone who is listening, like we have a lot of listeners from uh, other parts of Turtle Island, like uh, the United States, but we also have people from Aotearoa or Australia, Samoa, all, places all over. Um, could you just give a little bit of an overview of what the what it was like doing that inquiry? Because I don't know that everybody truly understands unless they've been part of it somehow.
1: Uh, good point. You had to be, you had to be it to see it, right? Um, it was a thirty-month inquiry, and our terms of reference, is, you know, were quite long. But I think that they can be best summarized as uh, we were required to inquire into all systemic causes of all types of violence against Indigenous women and girls, and we added Two Spirit or mm-hmm. um, LGBTQIA people. Uh, to that. So it, the mandate was huge and we were the first truly national inquiry ever to happen in Canada. Uh We were in, incorporated, for lack of better words, federally by the government of Canada and then sort of incorporated, for lack of better words, by every province and territory in Canada. So actually we had 14 different orders and council creating us and 14 different terms of reference, which really, you know, created a, a lot of Uh, legal issues for us, to say the least. Uh, But it was really difficult work. It was a difficult subject matter to start with. Um, We had very little time in which to do the work. Uh, We had uh, uh, such a broad mandate. It was difficult to kind of keep the focus And uh, we didn't want, we being the commissioners and and myself, it wasn't all me. I worked with fabulous people. Uh, We wanted to take a very colonial structure and try to make it as least traumatizing as possible for everyone. And Pam, we broke a lot of legal rules and bent a lot of legal rules. Uh, we didn't, re- for example, we didn't require that people swear oaths on Bibles, for example. We didn't require uh cross, or we didn't allow, rather, cross-examination of family members and survivors. I mean, the list goes on. But I knew from the work that I had done that we had to make this as, uh, user-friendly is not the right term, mm-hmm. but as, as least re-traumatizing as possible, but at the same time, Truth finding, and so it was. It was a real balance that uh, we tried to achieve all the way through, and uh, it was uh, from the get-go. It, the pre-inquiry created so many difficulties for us, Pam, and I'm, I'm glad you raised that because a lot of people shared their truths, as we call them, their stories about their lost loved ones or their own experiences with violence at the pre-inquiry stage. And so they thought, and quite rightly so, that was the inquiry. Uh, It wasn't. And so um, there was a lot of confusion, and it took a long time to get it sorted out, that uh, first of all, we couldn't use because of privacy laws. We couldn't just take that database from the pre-inquiry and use it. Uh, there were so many promises given during the time of the pre-inquiry Pam, that that we just couldn't that were made on behalf of the eventual national inquiry that were impossible for us to to keep uh, the time frame. Privacy issues, uh, you know, we the expectations that the pre-inquiry set up were just impossible. So, of course, there was pushback uh, when we started our work. There couldn't help but be.
0: It gets set up and you're already facing a multitude of challenges and people, you know, rightfully so expressing concern and... But, but then we get we finally get into the national inquiry and we finally start hearing from families, survivors, experts, advocates. I mean, people from all backgrounds all over the country. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a commissioner, uh, let alone the chief commissioner, listening to that, uh, you know, every day and and hearing just what must be horrendous evidence on a, on a regular basis. I mean, h- how did you and the commissioners handle that for yourselves? I mean, you're, you're also trying to make the, the inquiry into a trauma informed way for the participants, but how did you make sure that you guys were all okay? Well, thank you for asking that.
1: Uh, we all dealt with the vicarious trauma. In a number of our own personal ways, but as sort of a group, we um, did all of our work in ceremony. Uh, we had elders who we called grandmothers, who you know picked us up and dusted us off and pushed us back into into the hearing room, and but helped us with ceremony as well. Um, I had, as a judge, training with how to deal with vicarious trauma. So I went in with a little bit of experience under my belt as well, and I shared that with the commissioners. But we did a lot of, as I say, ceremonial work. We did a lot of um, uh, self-help work uh, just to deal with the vicarious
0: trauma. It's good to know that because nothing can actually proceed unless, you know, th- there's a process and some protections for everyone involved, you know, commissioners or people who are participating in it. Um so let's move to some of the inquiry's core findings. I mean, what do you think are some of the most, I mean, they're, they're all important. They all have different meaning to different people. So by no means am I saying, you know, just pick one or two, because we would be here for probably a month if we were to go through all of it. But what were some of the like most significant findings of the inquiry, if, if that's even possible? I,
1: I think I get your point. Uh, I think... Uh, our finding of genocide Mm -hmm. on historical and ongoing genocide was critical uh, as a foundation for the calls for justice, our our recommendations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, I think what's really important is taking that human rights-based approach to moving forward, to ending the genocide. And by a human rights-based approach, I mean that uh, we're not... uh, we're not, a, here's, here's a, a more concrete example. The government provides housing on reserve land uh, through different housing programs, uh, through uh, different government agencies in different ways. But that funding can be cut. That fund, it, you know, a program, a project, it can be cut at any time, depending on the election cycle, as we know, depending on, uh, you know, what the priorities are for the government for that year. So, a human rights-based approach is different. It's we're we're building housing on reserve land because safe housing, good clean housing, is a basic human right that all Canadians enjoy. We're guaranteeing that right. It isn't a gift that we're giving uh, people on that reserve, for example, uh, of a few houses here and there uh, that may or may not be built appropriately for the climate. Uh, we're not, It isn't a gift. It's a right, a right that has to be properly funded, properly recognized, properly resourced. And not a program that can be cut on the basis of a a change in in the election cycle or something like that. And so taking that rights-based approach, I think, is critical. And if you look at most of our calls for justice, our recommendations, we're taking that rights-based approach that Indigenous women and girls and 2S people have Indigenous and human rights that have been and continue to be violated. That's illegal. And the government has to stop it. And how are they going to do that? Well, by taking a rights-based approach to um, ensuring health, housing, education, safety, all of the basic human rights that they've been denying us for centuries now. So I think that human rights-based approach uh, theme through all of the calls for justice is really important to understand. It's a paradigm shift, as we say in one of the calls for justice, paradigm shift away from programs, projects, uh, funding cycles, reapplying every three years for fun. Yeah, you know, get away from that. We're taking a rights-based approach and this is core funding.
0: It sets the baseline that it can't be anything less, whereas you could have a thousand pieces of paper listing every program, initiative, pilot project, grant, contribution, and they could, in theory, add up to not even a dealing with the issue.
1: Yeah. Uh, As one pundit recently stated, the government's spending money to put out fires that they themselves set. Isn't that brilliant? I don't know who said
0: it now, but whoever
1: it was, thank you.
0: You've got genocide, and I think the the things I got from it, the things that I was really trying to express to the public when we were talking about the findings is that genocide requires intention. It's not like it's accidental. Like, you know, there's some degree of intention to destroy communities in a multitude of ways. And I think that was a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow, Mm -hmm. but also the, the ongoing nature of it. So it's, I think, in general, much easier for Canadians to accept when something bad has happened in the past because it's over and they can distance themselves from it and they can say it was my ancestors. It's not me. I have no role in it. Oh, that's so sad. Uh, Let's apologize and move on. Whereas this is still happening today in a multitude of ways, it's ongoing. There's multiple human rights violations, not even because you or I say that, but even the United Nations and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights looking objectively outside is saying, Canada, you've got all of these human rights violations. So I think it's a lot more difficult to, to really say it's ongoing. And some of us maybe a lot of us are implicated in the fact that it's not being addressed. How did you find it when, you know, in the in the days and weeks right after you released your report, I mean, the, most of the media commentators tended not even to focus on the calls for justice, but they were actually, what's the law of genocide? Is there a genocide? This wasn't genocide. People who don't even know the law or have even studied genocide, like, how, that must have really taken you aback, or did you guys all expect that?
1: I expected it. And so did the other commissioners. We knew uh, we knew around the table that uh, this was going to um, upset people.
0: And I think that's when a lot of people came together to really start engaging with the media and doing public engagement to say, you know, don't listen to this handful of media commentators who actually weren't at the inquiry or didn't read the report or don't know the genocide law. And actually, let's engage with that conversation. What is genocide and how does it roll out? And I think one of the things I appreciated about the report in general, I mean, there's lots of stuff, is the supplementary. Report You did specifically on genocide so that people could understand what your rationale and reasoning and evidence was. Like, how important was it for that supplementary part?
1: Oh, the supplemental report was critical to our work. We knew that we would have to have uh, more about genocide uh, and to take a very strict legal approach to it as well, um, because we knew our, um, I knew anyway, I, I can't speak for the other commissioners, but I knew that there would be, you know, people say, the deniers saying, mm-hmm. oh, no, there's no genocide. There, you know, this, it isn't like the.
0: Um, uh, Holocaust. You know,
1: sorry, sorry, but, you know, the Holocaust or, or uh, lining people up and shooting them. Yeah. Um, sorry for that reference, but uh, so it, Therefore, it can't it doesn't look like what the news tells us a genocide looks like so it can't be a genocide is, is what and and I knew that that would happen I I knew it would be very unpopular and so as a result I wanted to have a very well-founded uh legal document about genocide um for those people who would be interested in reading it because I knew that just you know yeah. there's a proportion of the population just won't listen anyway. So don't waste your time with them.
0: Well, and it's the same. They're the same people denying anything happened in residential schools, denying unmarked graves, denying like all of the issues that we talk about, just deny it. But I think, I mean, this, this inquiry has the potential to be far reaching even outside of Canada, because you know, our brothers and sisters, in the united states you know all of those native american governments and and tribes and peoples down there they went through similar things uh and in some cases even worse things like th- some of their numbers are even greater um, and they're going through that process now of how do we address murder to missing indigenous women and girls in the United States? They're, you know, grappling with legislation. They're trying to think of a multitude of ways to deal with it nationally and on a state-based way. So, I, I mean, there's, there's lots they can glean from the recommendations in this inquiry. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to also ask you, I know there's, you know, well over 200 calls for justice, I think 237-ish, something like that. Um, Are there some that you think are the most urgent that we put in place uh, right now?
1: Yes. Uh, Just to backtrack for a moment, um, I've had uh, contact and some working time with task forces, uh, MMIWG task forces in the United States, now Australia and also South Africa. So the National Inquiry's final report has a lot of international traction, <gasps> and I yeah, and so I think that's important to know. Canada may be ignoring it, but other countries aren't, oh, yes. and I think that's that's really important. So I I just wanted to add that. Yeah, as, no, that's good. Uh, you know, uh, things that need to be done right away. Oh well, where to start? Yeah. But I think there are a couple of ones that are really important and could have been done by now. And the first one is to have the National Indigenous and uh, Human Rights Ombudsperson, and also to have the National uh, Indigenous and Human Rights Tribunal. Because one of the things that we found is that there's no simple expeditious way for Indigenous people to claim breaches of their Indigenous and human rights. We know the Canadian court system is expensive, it takes a long time, and you don't get the remedy you want. Anyway, Canadian Human Rights Tribunal does a wonderful job about certain things, but again, time-consuming, difficult to navigate. Various police complaints commissions, difficult to navigate, time-consuming. That's why we recommended one body that can specialise in Indigenous and human rights violations and provide appropriate remedies and to have the properly resourced, of course, but also to uh, provide the proper remedies. Because he- here's the problem, Pam, governments, plural, across Canada are saying, well, there are no rights violations because, you know, nobody's bringing us to court. You know, nobody's making complaints Well, it's because they can't. And So, you know, it's sort of a head in the sand thing of, well, uh, nobody's making complaints, so there there can't be a problem. Well, if you don't provide people with the opportunity to make, you know, it becomes a circular argument. So the ombudsperson, the tribunal, could have been up and running by now, decarcerating Mm -hmm. Indigenous women and girls. Critical. Now, this has been on the agenda with the uh, 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 corrections investigator for years, we adopted their recommendations and even went a little bit further. Decarcerate those uh, women. Take a human rights approach to housing, culture, language um, uh, preservation. Get the kids out of foster care. Uh, strengthen and support families rather than ripping them apart. Um, I'm sort of lumping them all together, uh, promoting uh, with long-term stable funding, uh, shelters for women across Canada. There just aren't in communities. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of them, but that tribunal, ombudsperson, get kids out of foster care, decarcerate, uh, long-term funding, rights-based funding, uh, language and culture. I mean, its it's all there. It's all there.
0: It's all there. And literally, this is what, you know, international organizations like the United Nations Human Rights Treaty Bodies, Inter-American Commission on Human Rights have been saying the socioeconomic conditions, which are perpetuated by the state, those conditions lead to situations of ill health and losing kids and incarceration. So it's like, if you can't even get at, you know, the, the root causes of what you're doing and only try to treat it from like a legislative point of view, we're not going to get at it. So the fact that you included, you know, those socioeconomic conditions that are have been manufactured by the state and in, in many ways maintained by the state. I mean, if if you know the formula, like the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, like even the federal government said in their own internal papers, the lack of funding contributes to the disproportionate level of apprehensions, but then you don't fix the funding, then you're knowingly allowing disproportionate apprehensions. And mm-hmm. I just thought, boy, if if more governments could actually put the math together that you were able to do in the national inquiry and so many people were testifying to like you've got to put all these things together and see it as genocide and get away from the idea that Genocide is only what happened in other countries in short periods of time under different political circumstances and understand that, yes, killing can be a part of uh, genocide, but so too can physical and mental harm and taking kids away and preventing births and doing all of these other things like any one of those things would count. And unfortunately, you had to you had to deal with all of it. Wow. Um, and, and I've seen you in the media and on Twitter. uh, you know, commenting about this, the court case and the settlement, like the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal issued a compensation order and you were saying, just, can you just pay it? I mean, that money won't cover these children's lives, Mm -hmm. but it seems like such a small thing to do to just comply with those orders. You know, to me, it was a no-brainer. But, you know, uh,
1: going back to the, underlying causes just for a moment mm-hmm. we recommended uh, uh, a livable income for all Canadians based on and not just one number across the board because we know living in the north is way more expensive than in the south and you know if you look at like you take that one thing Pam like the money take the money and spend it differently differently uh, acknowledging basic human rights, what a difference it would make. And I uh, I just find it so frustrating when governments uh, will put band-aids on issues and not go to the root cause.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the way in which looking at it from a human rights lens means you its it's so much broader than if you're just looking at one isolated incident of violence, mm-hmm. uh, police assaulting an Indigenous woman or sexually assaulting an Indigenous woman, and you can analyze that and say one bad apple, one bad circumstance, and not really look at the systemic nature. Because when you look at the systemic nature of human rights violations, then you see, oh wait, well there's the extractive industry and the higher levels of violence related there, and then there's you know the social work profession, and then there's the education, and then there's hospitals, and so it's so much broader than people think and so systemic that if you put a human rights framework on it, then it, then it fits, Mm -hmm. it it fits. And I'm wondering, is there, what's the work of the commissioners now? Does it end after the inquiry and everything's like um, signed off? Is is there any kind of ongoing work for the commissioners or is that not how it works?
1: No, that's not how it works. Um, June 30th, 2019, at 11.59 p.m., we were done. And uh, uh, we lost our superpowers, so to speak. And yeah, there was nothing. Nobody reported to us after that. Uh, we weren't obligated to report to anybody. We, did, we didn't know anything more than members of the general public.
0: The report came out months before an election, so we were at the Inter-American Commission saying you need to, you know we need to get Canada to act on this report and Canada's response was sorry we're in caretaker mode we can't do anything. And then we come back from an election and there's nationwide protests against police violence against black people and it's like sorry we're dealing with this right now and then it's pipelines and they're dealing with pipelines and then oops, we're now in another election. Now it's pandemic. I feel like every excuse under the sun has been used to take really substantive, urgent genocide based action because genocide means this isn't just an everyday one off thing. This is a national crisis. And to me, maybe it's just me, but I don't see the corresponding genocide-level national response that we should have had. Yeah. Is, is that something that you see too?
1: Yes, of course. Uh, the federal government's response has been entirely underwhelming. Uh, but I think are some bright lights in all of this and uh, really have kind of <laughs> left the government, federal government in, in the dust, so to speak. Yukon uh, has done a wonderful job of sort of synthesizing our report, TRC and a few others. They, they just hit the ground running. They went to, uh, they struck a committee, tripartite committee, visited every community in Yukon, which is a task, I'll tell you, uh, and developed their own implementation plan. And it's brilliant. NWT just recently released their uh, implementation plan. A lot of changes are happening on the ground at the grassroots level, where people are saying, well, obviously we can't wait for the government. We better make this change ourselves. And so, for example, in Ontario, the Ontario Native Women's Association partnered with the Ontario government to work on the issue of human trafficking. And with some good results, I might add. uh, There are uh, people in Alberta who are expanding Indigenous policing, for example. So, um, uh, new relationships being built. Immediately after we filed our report, the mayor of the city of Saskatoon said to city council, okay, take the summer, everybody read the report. When we come back in the fall, we're going to pick priorities. and develop strategies for implementation. New relationships between families of missing and murdered and survivors uh, in Winnipeg and the chief of police there, or chief constable, I think he is. So, they're, they're, oh, and then in Saskatchewan, the women said, well, we're not waiting for the government. We're forging ahead. Same thing in Alberta. So, you know, there's a lot happening at the grassroots level um, because people at the grassroots know it's a genocide no doubt about it, and they're doing the hard work, the hard, you know, getting the calls at midnight, people in distress type of work. They're doing the hard work.
0: Well, it seems to be that's always the way it is. We're, we're the ones that have to take the lead. Um, before we let you go, I ask this of every guest, what can Canadians do to push this issue, to push governments and industry and organizations to act on this report and the calls for justice? Oh, big question,
1: but oddly enough, a very simple answer. I think the first thing all Canadians have to do, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, is we have to educate ourselves about the true history of Canada. And, you know, that's that's easily done. Uh, You know, I just tell people, look, if you're not reading Indigenous authors in your book club, get some on your list. When you're in the lineup at Tim Hortons, Google Indigenous and Canada and see what and read one website. You know, there are a lot of really easy ways for all of us to educate ourselves about the true history of Canada. And then you understand what the issues are and why it's important to push ahead. And I think we also have to hold media to account here, Mm -hmm. because we know about news, 24-hour news cycles, for example. Uh, You know, uh, out of sight, out of mind. Let's get this back as a national discussion. And how do we do that? Well, we can do a lot of that through social media and by people learning what the issues are, pushing back against government
0: yeah people don't realize i think sometimes the power of social media you know mainstream media yes it's it's prolific but social media if you can get through all of the noise actually has the power to educate inform inspire uh push for action there's so many things people can do that doesn't even cost money um but but i think uh that's where we need to go and um, I, can't, I can't thank you enough for coming on this podcast because this is part of trying to keep this conversation going to help educate people to understand where the information is. Like this is the website. They can go and read the reports. They don't have to read it all in one sitting, obviously. Um, but, you know, there's uh, lots of different reports on different uh, actions and. Um, it's there's so many Indigenous organizations and communities and women Indigenous women's groups and human rights groups doing great work. You know, you mentioned one Ontario Native Women. You know, there's Native Women's Association of of Quebec and you know pe- individuals like Cindy Blackstock and Sharon McIver. I mean, there's just so many. You can pick any one of them and follow what they're doing and support what they're doing. And so thank you for taking the time. I know you're not on the inquiry anymore, but for helping to still educate and help us understand what it was like what's important what we need to work on first and and maybe inspire some canadians to reinvigorate the fire to get some more attention on this issue my pleasure pam happy
1: to do this thank Thank you you. so much for a wonderful conversation thank you. you
0: awesome and to all of the um, listeners and viewers please you know here's the website go and read that Um, share this podcast use it as a teaching tool and don't forget to support indigenous groups and communities and creators and artists all over the country that goes a long way to helping rebuild our nations and our economies till next time keep living a warrior life walalia